This is Our House by Art, Humanity, and Action, a podcast where activists tell stories about the first time they realized they had to get involved and what happened next. I'm your host, Nicole Ferraro. And then I said, okay, I got to get to work. I couldn't sit back anymore. This was me really standing up and saying enough. We decided that we really needed to have an organized response. I knew I had to be involved. I wanted to help. Our stories are actually the biggest things that we had to make a difference. Rikers means a lot of things to a lot of different people. People, I mean, it's, I think it symbolizes the worst in both our correctional system and our judicial system. It allows the courts to just throw people onto the island and forget about them. To me, it's become a, a place with a whole lot of people who are really just waiting patiently to be treated like people. You're listening to John Proctor. John is a teacher at Manhattanville College who started his own creative arts program on Rikers Island. His journey was pretty rocky, starting with the death of his advisor who asked him to run the program in the first place. This was devastating for John and his department and the project stalled. John kept trying to find new ways to get the program off the ground and after months of unsuccessful outreach, he eventually got a response from a program director at Rikers saying, sounds great. Can you come in next week? And John said, okay. So I went into my first day kind of blind. Q100 is a bus that ends at Rikers Island. You go over a bridge. Before you step off the bus, officers come onto the bus and say, this is your amnesty period. If you have any drugs, leave them on the bus. Once you get off this bus, anything found in your possession will be held against you and the person you're coming to see. And then the clearance itself, that's where the most can go wrong. A well-known saying about Rikers Island and New York City Department of Corrections is it's all about the facts. And their fax machines suck. More than half the time for my first six months, I get there and my clearance would not be faxed there. And so I would have to call the person who faxes the clearance. The person who faxes the clearance blames the person who's supposed to receive it. The person who's received it, you know, blames the person who's supposed to fax it. And I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs, watching the time for my workshop dwindle. John dealt with all the red tape, all the faxes, and once he finally got things going, Rikers moved the inmates to another facility and his program got shut down. And it was another two months before he heard from his program coordinator about starting up again at a new location. She had been moved to NIC, uh, North Infirmary Command, which is the old infirmary way on the other side of the island. And she asked if I would like to restart my workshop there. I said, yes, I would love to. The thing about NIC is it's mostly a blank slate for programming because it, it serves people who have health issues and the elderly, but it also serves 
high profile inmates and people who have been disciplined in what's called enhanced restraint. It's actually a really challenging teaching environment because nothing about the place was built as an educational environment. The older guys who I work with, I work with in the rec room of a common floor. There are roughly 30 cots secured to the floor. And I actually have to like walk around and wake people up and be like, you wanna come join me in the back in the rec room? And enhanced restraint, those are the most substantial challenges because it's a cell block with a hallway that I essentially walk up and down and talk to the guys individually. You know, if they want to have conversation, they shout from from cell to cell. It ends up very one-on-one. I try to get them in conversation with each other. And actually, any of those guys who are in those cell blocks are pretty intimate with each other because there's not walls between them. There's just the bars. Typically, I do like to employ readings. I've now found that there are a lot of guys drawing. They want to talk about their neighborhoods they grew up in, how they've changed. They want to talk about places they want to go. The guys who are drawing want to, like, draw the places that they want to be. I went to my program coordinator and said, would you mind if I try to find an art therapist uh, or or an artist to come in? And that's when we started what we're now calling Creative Arts Fridays which includes my writing workshop, it includes a book club, and it includes arts instruction. And we'll have two support staff starting. My college is now becoming more involved, and we are figuring out how to do this. Yeah, all of a sudden it's turned into something. After the first couple of months, when they were no longer surprised that I was continuing to come, that's when some really deep personal investment came, not just from me, but from them. When people see that you are committed, they are committed. John continues his advocacy work, both as a teacher inside of Rikers and as an activist. In a moment, we'll talk more with John about his work, why it matters to him, and how you can get involved in helping the incarcerated population. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story with us. Why do you think that your advisor suggested that you create this program in the first place? He had asked me because he knew that my father was incarcerated for some of my childhood. And I didn't see that as part of my work until a few months in when I decided to talk to my dad about it. I talk about a lot of my work with my father, and it's it's actually brought us really kind of a lot closer. I didn't meet my father actually until I was 15. Because when he got out, he actually um, had two families. I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. He met my mother there. He's from Chicago. He was sent to Hutch, Hutchinson State Facility in Kansas. When he got out, 
I had always thought that it was just him choosing his other family, but he told me when I was complaining about how much these guys go through when they come out with how much they are judged continually everywhere they go, he told me, you know, that's kind of why I moved back to Chicago was back then you could move out of state and not have to tell anybody that you're a convicted felon. Now you just can't do that. And so after six months, I called my father and started talking about this. And we just started having some some really breakthrough conversations that we'd never had before. And then it was only then that I started to to realize that it is connected. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's funny how everything we do, we see like the little cascades yeah. and and in fact, I I was always surprised that my director um even brought that up as a and I didn't even actually remember telling him. But I it surprised me that he remembered that and then he that he made that connection. I think that's actually a great tribute to the how wonderful my department head was as a person. He was a remarkably caring, intuitive person who tended to see those things in people, I think. If somebody is at home and listening to this and wanting to take a first step in getting involved or doing what you did, what would, what do you recommend? Uh, actually, kind of a big thing. I think everyone should, as part of their civic duty, um, spend at least one day in a correctional facility a year and one day in civil court. There's no way you can sit in civil court and actually listen to the the, the negotiations and the ways that jail is used as a bargaining chip, especially in lower level civil or criminal court. There, I honestly think there's no way any morally grounded person could witness that and not be affected. And if it's at all possible to get into a facility in any way, I would recommend that as well. I think part of the reason why we are where we are with our criminal justice system is so many people accept that that goes on over there. I live here. And I think that needs to change. If you want to like get into the court systems and know what to look for, there's actually an organization called Court Watch NYC um, that will tell you where to go and tell you what to look for. To my understanding, they, they do a little mock-up of what to expect to happen and then show you. Um, they kind of give you the things to look for, and unfortunately, trust that that's the way it's going to happen in the court. Last year, when I went to a workshop that included a mock-up of what happens on the average morning, if you, for example, you know, have a low-level offense that you're going in for, your court-appointed 18B lawyer will spend maybe five seconds with you saying, this is your charge, this is what's been offered, do you accept? the end. And if you don't accept, back to Rikers. So it gives you a sense of of just what to expect. Yes. And, and I think, you know, I think one day, one day in court, probably 50%, a bunch of roughly half of the people who spend a day in court come out profoundly changed. John, thank you so much for being here on the podcast and being in the world. You're awesome. Thank you for having me.
Thank you so much to John Proctor for being with us on the podcast and for the incredible work you do inside and outside of Rikers Island. If you want to take a first step in getting involved in the prison and court system, check out Court Watch. We'll link to it in the show notes. And you can keep up with John's work at Rikers by following him on Twitter at John Proc. This podcast comes from Art, Humanity, and Action, and it's edited and produced by Jeff Rose, who is sitting here in silence as we speak. Thanks, Jeff. Music is by Audioblocks. We'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and thank you for being in the world.